Hey, good morning. My name is James, one of the pastors here, and I decided to brighten your morning up a little bit with my very cool orange jacket. Actually, I've had this thing for years and years. I rarely wear it. One of my best friends always teased me about wearing it because he said I looked like his mother's curtains. So I took a selfie this morning before the service start, and I sent it to him with the words, watch and weep. And we waited, Tiffany and I, we were sitting waiting as the service starts. This is terrible, we're all supposed to be worshipping, but I'm looking at my cell phone as the service starts. And there came the reply, my mother's curtains are back again. So, <laughs> predictable response. As Tiffany mentioned to you last fall, we were reading the book of Daniel together. And you may recall, he's this young Jewish man, born around 620 BC, long time ago. And his story begins with a war, and he was on the losing side. He's taken as a prisoner of war around 605, he's probably 15, and forced to travel to a foreign country. There had been a mass slaughter of people. He's torn from his family, his friends, from everything familiar by this conquering horde of people that had plunged his territory and his homeland into chaos. People, friends, killed all round about him. And he, taken as a prisoner of war, was marched over a thousand kilometers in chains to a place where many people would die. When he arrived in Babylon, they discovered he was bright and intelligent, and so he was chosen to be schooled in Babylonian culture and language and given a position of where he could work in the empire. He probably was also castrated to make sure that he could be kept under control. He had a career in politics, actually. He did well for himself. He became premier, but these days anybody could do that. But Did I say that out loud? Sorry. He rose to number two or number three in the imperial regime overall. He did well for himself. He even managed to survive Middle East regime change at least twice. But the story of his life is recounted in the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. And we read about him and some of his friends and their journey of faith when they were far from home. You might remember the exciting part, like the lion's den or the fiery furnace, some of the stories that we may have learned even as children. And we called the series Unwavering because it was the story of unwavering faith of these people who were far from home, far from everything they knew, far from the temple where they would have gone to worship. Chapter 1 of Daniel, we're with these exiles as they travel along. And we discovered that their faith was portable. They took it in their hand luggage with them. It didn't stay in Jerusalem while they went away because their identity was found in God, not in their circumstances. Then in chapter 2, we listened with them as they listened for the whisper of God, realizing that God was not absent from them. He was there, ready and willing to speak to them and to hear from them. We discovered God's not hiding from us either. He wants to hear from us. In chapter 3, there's that fiery furnace, and we discover the story of their faith, but also the story of God's deliverance. But it didn't come the way we thought it might. We'd love God to deliver us from the fire before trouble ever starts. It turns out God chose to deliver them through the fire. It was hard, but we're not alone. In chapter 4, we began to see the humility of their faith as we learned with them to embrace our weaknesses rather than to always complain about them or be angry about them. Chapter 5, we get the phrase, the writing on the wall, when this mysterious hand appeared and began to write on the wall at a great party that was taking place, and strange things were happening, and we discovered something about the mystery of God and how he invites us to use our creativity and imagination in our conversations that we have, not just simply with him, but in our conversations with others about him. We wrapped up in chapter 6, the story of the lion's den, where Daniel's prayers opened heaven and God was glorified. Daniel was rescued. 
Today we come to the second half of the book. It begins in chapter 7. And the style of writing changes fairly dramatically. We've called this part of the series Unveiled. Because we've switched from story writing or narrative, things we're familiar with, into something that's called apocalyptic. Whenever I hear that word, my first thought is always about movies that I go to see, post-apocalyptic movies, stories of survival after some horrific event, some zombies are around or aliens have shown up or who knows what. And you can see things like The Hunger Games or The Matrix, Mad Max, A Quiet Place, The Children of Men, Day After Tomorrow, I Am Legend, scariest movie I ever watched, I think, World War Z, Book of Eli. But while the story of Daniel certainly moves from nice storytelling into something that's a little more freaky, more like watching a movie in chapter 7, it's not about some traumatic event that happens and we all watch and are terrified by what's going on. This is not about survival after a disaster. It's something different. You see, the word apocalyptic just means revelation, really. And the style of writing, it's about optimism, a revelation of something good rather than about doom and mere survival. And while present circumstances may be difficult for Daniel, or may be difficult for us, there is an amazing future to come, because God's intervention makes all the difference. Apocalyptic really does mean unveiled, a revealing of things. And this type of writing, whether you find it in a Bible book like Daniel, or whether you find it in some of the other ancient writings of the Middle East, lots of people wrote in this style, it has a bit of a story to it. There's usually a human being who sees or hears the story. Daniel, in this case, saw something. There's often some sort of otherworldly being, like a magical figure or an angel or something like that, who's going to explain some of it. There's going to be this new way of seeing reality that will be revealed, a distinction between the present and the future, the unveiling of some kind of divine plan, a sharp contrast between good and evil, and some imminent arrival of God himself making all the difference. But there's a caution I think we need to pay attention to before we start reading. Apocalyptic is stuffed full with metaphors and images. It's a metaphor-rich genre of writing. And it can be tempting for us to look to find a specific meaning in every single word of the sentence. Big, what does that mean? Huge, leg, wonder what leg means. Is that a lion? Is it an octopus? And people go off looking for all sorts of meanings that are not necessarily there. We need to learn to be cautious when we read and try to read and understand the way the people that first read it would have done so. Because while there are lots of symbols in this type of writing, they're not ciphers, they're not hieroglyphics. Not every word means something else. In this sense, the symbols are evoking a whole range of images. They're saying a word that makes us think of lots of words together as we begin to try and understand what's going on in the story. And many of these ideas that were represented by symbols would have been understandable to the first people reading. And so I want us to learn how to read and discover hope without all of the hype that sometimes goes along with these books. People are always trying to interpret the future together. So let's dive in. And we're going to read from chapter 7, verse 1 together. It starts like this. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon... Daniel had a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream. I, Daniel, saw in my vision by night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I watched, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human being. And a human mind was given to it. Another beast appeared, a second one, that looked like a bear. 
It was raised up on one side and had three tusks in its mouth among its teeth and was told, Arise, devour many bodies. After this, as I watched, another appeared like a leopard. The beast had four wings of a bird in its back and four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the visions by night a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and was devouring, breaking in pieces and stomping what was left with its feet. It was different than all the beasts that had preceded it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns when another horn appeared, a little one that came up among them. Three of the original horns were plucked up from before it. There were eyes like human eyes in this horn, and a mouth speaking arrogantly. That is weird, no matter how you think about this book of Daniel. Verse 1, bedtime. Daniel has a dream, a vivid dream. And it's interesting if you remember the first half of the book, because in the first half of the book, Daniel's expertise was interpreting dreams. Kings were always having bad dreams, and Daniel was always there to tell them what they meant. Except this time, he didn't know what his own dream meant, so he wrote it down. In verse 2, we begin to see the words that he writes. Four winds coming from the four corners of the earth. A sense of completeness, perhaps, or of cosmic forces. Sometimes that number four might mean complete. And there's the sea where they come from. And in their time, people were scared of the sea. There were no cruise liners going around then. If you were going in the sea, there was every chance you could drown. People didn't like being close to the sea. It was a dangerous place. And then the four beasts appear, and you discover this isn't some sort of nice dream that Daniel has. He's in a living nightmare, talking orcs from the Lord of the Rings or white walkers from Game of Thrones. That's what's going on here. And there's the number four again, these watery beasts from the sea. They're like nothing in God's creation, and that's actually the point. They're not like regular animals. God didn't make these. The imagery is pointing towards something that isn't representative of God. More likely, these are the forces of darkness. The first beast shows up in verse 4, a lion with eagle's wings who's both powerful and fast. The second one's in verse 5, a bear with tusks who eats people. He's ferocious. In verse 6, we get the third one, a leopard, not just with spots, but with wings and four heads. He's large and in charge. And then in verse 7 comes this fourth beast. If the others were bad, this one is utterly terrifying. It's beyond description, really. Dreadful, terrifying, strong, devouring, stomping. Everybody's scared of this. And as we read about it, this fourth beast had all sorts of horns, particularly one with eyes, something perhaps like the great eye of Sauron, watching and keeping an eye on everybody. And it was mouthy. It liked to boast and to show off. Bible scholar Christopher Wright says this, this fourth beast represents such ultimate manifestations of evil, anti-God, anti-human forces that exude arrogance, breathe out violence, and wreak devastation and destruction on an enormous scale, causing intense suffering to the people of God at such times. But then all of a sudden, just when you've got this going on, there's a scene change in this vivid dream. And we go from contemplating the beasts who have come out of the sea and all the scary things they're doing, suddenly we're elevated up to heaven and we're looking at something slightly different. It's almost like a split screen thing going on that I know some of you can do with your TVs and some movies or shows are like that, where the terrible events on earth are in one screen and what's happening in heaven's on another. Same time, different places. And the, light, the things that are going on earth are now seen in light of what's happening in heaven. 
And we get that in this next section from verses 9 through 14. The first couple of verses, 9 and 10, they're up in heaven. Then 10 through, 11 through 12, we're back in earth. 13 and 14, we're back up in heaven again. And if you listen carefully when I read them, you'll see that each shift begins with the notice of Daniel saying that he was watching. Verse 9, as I watched, thrones were set in place and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was pure wool. His throne was like fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood attending him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I watched. Then, because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking, and as I watched, the beast was put to death and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. And as he came to the ancient one and was presented before him, to him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Verse 9, we begin in heaven. Thrones are set up. There's an authority structure in this nightmare world that we've been reading about. And interestingly, there's more than one throne. What might that mean? Well, we'll keep reading. The ancient one, or the ancient of days, depends what translation of the Bible you're using, takes his place. The title simply means he's just really, really old. This very old grandpa-like figure comes and takes a seat. He's been around for a long time. Apparently, he's been around for a much longer time than these beasts. His white hair is designed to help us know that with age comes wisdom, and he's wise. But his white clothes speak of purity and remind us that he's righteous and holy. He's not like these beasts. And as we discover the court moving into session, this is God, and he's here to judge. His throne has wheels, because it's a chariot, a battle throne. He's ready for war, and he's got fire. He's got fire that he's going to use against these watery beasts and sort things out. And in verse 10, we read of a stream or a river of fire. It's like he's got a flamethrower attached to his chariot so he can go to war. Think of real Mad Max sort of imagery going on here. God with this amazing flamethrower on his big chariot, he's going to burn everybody. But then we go back to earth again in verse 11. Beast number four, he's toast, like literally toast, burned to a crisp, done away with. That's the end of him, burned up and dead. Verse 12, the other three, they're bound up and stripped of their authority. They've got no hope. And then in verse 13, we jump back up to heaven again. The scene changes. And one like a human being appears. Or some translations will put it, one like the son of man or a son of man. In Daniel's time, that actually was a common term that just usually meant a human being. The prophet Ezekiel uses the phrase quite often. And all he really means with it is a person, some guy, some female. That's all he's talking about, a human being. Average Joe, dude, somebody like that. But in chapter 7, when we look closely, the text actually says one like a human being or one like a son of man. What Daniel saw and what's written down is somebody who's more than simply human. In fact, in that same verse that we read, we discover that the one like a human being, the one like the son of man, 
is riding on the clouds of heaven. He's a cloud rider. And anytime you see that in the scriptures, it always refers to divinity, to God riding on the clouds. What was it Jesus said when he was on trial for his life and asked if he was the Messiah? We read these words. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Wow. Son of Man was Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. So look what happens in verse 14. Average Joe, Son of Man, has given dominion, glory, and kingship. People worship and serve him. They're actually worshiping someone like a human being, not simply God himself. No wonder when people would be ticked off when Jesus was going around saying, yo, I'm the Son of Man. People are going to worship me. That was quite the claim. But let's keep going to hear what happens in this situation in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was troubled within me. No kidding. And the visions of my head terrified me. I approached one of the attendants to ask him the truth concerning all of this. So he said that he would disclose to me the interpretation of the matter. As for these four great beasts, four kings shall arise out of the earth. But the holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Daniel's really freaked out. He's troubled, more than troubled. He's terrified. He's watched this horror movie in 3D. He's spilled his popcorn, wet his pants, and he doesn't know what to do. What does this all mean? Verse 16, do you remember we said that apocalyptic writing usually included some otherworldly being or creature, maybe something divine or magical that would explain what's going on? Well, there they are. Verse 16, Daniel asks this individual or this creature for an explanation of what's going on. And the explanation reminds us as we read it carefully that this is a story, this is a dream or vision about God's sovereignty, not about dualism. What I mean by that is that these beasts in verse 17 represent different empires. Different empires come and they go. In Daniel's time, he watched and participated in the regime changes empires came and fell. Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. Or we could talk of ancient Greece and the Roman Empire or the Ottomans and the Habsburgs, or the British and French and Dutch empires, or the Nazis and Soviets and Maoists, or today you might talk about Meta and Alphabet and Amazon. Different empires, but all of them have the same problems. Whenever humans create power structures and exclude God from the whole conversation, bad things can happen. Sometimes little bad things, sometimes catastrophic bad things. But bad things happen because we humans are easily corrupted by power. We see it all the time. We're easily corrupted by power in politics, in finance, in the office, at home, even in the school playground it happens. Tempted by power, and when we give in to temptation, it's always somebody at the bottom of the pile that suffers. It's always somebody at the bottom of the pile that pays the price for someone else who absorbs and claims power for themselves. Human systems apart from God lead to chaos. That's what we're being told. And we've seen it over and over. Political chaos, economic chaos, violent chaos. We see it in the news all the time right now. Maybe you personally live in chaos in your own life right now. 
The problem is not that humans were involved. After all, God made us, and he made us to live and take care of his beautiful creation, his world. Having humans involved is actually God's idea. He gave us this. The problem is that we try to exclude God from what we're up to. We exclude him from the situation, believing we can do a much better job than he ever could. It's the story of our first parents trying to go about life without God. And it's a story that each one of us has repeated ever since in our own way. But if you notice these beasts, they're all judged at the same time. It gives the impression of God, the ancient of days, the ancient one, breaking right into history when things are going wrong. Not waiting till the end of time to make everything right, but actually breaking into history to change things. He's not powerless. God is not standing by watching, wringing his hands. This is not a battle of evenly matched foes. God is in control. This story that Daniel has seen in his vision is a story of God's sovereignty. These other powers and beasts and empires or corporations are no match for him. This is not yin and yang. It's not good and bad. It's not black and white. It is the story of the triumph of God where God comes to rescue his world. And there has been an invasion. The result is inevitable. God wins and all of these other powers will crumble. That's why it's also a story of optimism and not pessimism. You see, in God's kingdom, in God's empire, power is different than the way we see it. Power in God's kingdom is used to help the marginalized and the weak, not to exploit them. The marginalized are brought from the edge and into the center. There is goodness and enough for everyone. Nobody is left behind in God's kingdom. Then in verse 18, we're told that these holy ones will receive this kingdom. And again in verses 21 and 22, we haven't got that far yet, that after judgment by the ancient of days, the ancient one, the holy ones really do receive God's kingdom. It's Jesus that does that. He brings God's kingdom. When he began his ministry, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That was his invitation to everybody. God's kingdom in Jesus bursts right into human history. In the middle of history, there has been an invasion. Jesus has arrived. Resurrection power on the third day on that Sunday morning, resurrection power is unleashed into God's creation. And it will never be stopped. It can never be stopped. And as we identify with Jesus, what do we discover? We discover that our destiny has become his. Suffering, persecution, violence, and death. He died for our sin. But we discover that his destiny becomes ours. Vindication, freedom, life everlasting. His gift freely given to his people. God's kingdom isn't like the beast's. It's not like our worst nightmares. It isn't like what's going on in Ukraine or Gaza right now. It isn't like the US or Canada either for that matter. God's kingdom is like Jesus because he is the son of man. He is the one who came to seek and to save. He is the one who came to rescue us. The invasion has begun. But they didn't get it. And I think so often neither do we. We don't get it. And yet Jesus is the one God appointed, God in the flesh, the Son of Man, sent by the Ancient of Days, who has given the throne to sit at his right hand. 
It's a story of optimism because Jesus has already triumphed over the forces of death and sin and hell. He is the invading king. Georges and Therese Gondry owned the Café Gondry in Normandy in France. It still exists and it sits on the banks of a lovely ship canal. And not too far from it, there's a bridge that goes over it called Pegasus Bridge. It's the only way over that canal for quite a long way inland before you come to the first town. In the planning for the D-Day Normandy invasion, the Allied command knew that holding that bridge was going to be crucial if the landing forces could get to the other side of the canal and keep pressing inland at a rapid pace. It mattered that they could hold the bridge. It was critical to the success of the entire D-Day events. And they knew that they had to be certain of this before anybody landed on the shore. Commandos from the British 6th Airborne Division were led by Major Tom. John Howard, and they were dispatched in gliders to get there six hours early before the invasion began. The idea was that they would be there and hold the bridge at all costs, hold the bridge. The cafe was the only building nearby, and it was too close to be ignored, so when they took the bridge, they took the cafe as well. Think about it. For those few hours, Georges and Theresa were the only people liberated in all of France, the only people liberated from German occupation. Hours before the Allies would reach the, beach, reach the beaches, they were there in their house, in their cafe, free. They were free already, but nobody else knew about it. Nobody else saw it. No one else was aware about it. Liberation was coming because the invasion was imminent and nobody knew. And here in Daniel chapter 7, we discover that Jesus, the liberating king, has already invaded and brought liberation. He brings everything to come different. It's making it all new. We are free. Invasion is here. There's a story of optimism because the king has arrived. But it's also a story of responsibility, human responsibility, not just fatalism. This is not a vision that Daniel has where we sit by and go, wow, that's amazing. I'll sit here and watch and see what happens next. Not only does the ancient one place the son of man in a throne beside him, he gives his, kingdoms to the, his kingdom to the holy ones. Who are they? We usually think of holy ones or saints as spectacular people. They're holy, they work miracles, they do weird stuff. They're different somehow from the rest of us, morally perfect perhaps. But actually the word just simply means set apart. It's really all holy means. They're just set apart. I brought these up here with me, these grapes. I got lots of them. You could think about these grapes. They're quite light. Why don't I try one? Oops, I've dropped one. Don't mind me. Talk among yourselves. These are quite nice, actually. Sorry. <laughs> but you could think about them. All these grapes, I'll set these ones apart. Now these grapes are away from the other ones. You could do it with your Lego bricks. You could do it with all sorts of things at home. You could just set some apart. Could be your vegetables, could be your photographs, could be some clothes. In the New Testament, the followers of Jesus are called holy ones, or saints, set apart. 62 times they're referred to that in the New Testament, set apart for God's purposes. They're not morally perfect. They don't glow in the dark. Well, I might glow in the dark, but nobody else glows in the dark. They're simply gods. They're God's grapes. You ever thought of yourself like that? How does it happen? How do we become set apart? 
It begins when we say yes to Jesus. He said the kingdom of God has come near. Repent. Repent simply means a change of mind, a change of direction. It's stop going my own way. Stop thinking I know best. Stop doing everything excluding God and my own decisions. It's to stop being in charge of my life and to allow God to swivel me around and begin to follow him, to allow him to be front and center where I take my lead from what he wants to do. It's to stop living as though I can be one of those scary beasts and make everybody do what I want to do and somehow focus at least my part of the world simply around me, everybody acquiescing to what I want. Repent means to turn around. The kingdom of heaven has come near, says Jesus. The invasion has started. Repent, turn around. And he says, believe. Believe the good news. To believe is trust. To believe is to have faith, to receive faith, to have faith that Jesus is who he says he is, that he can do what he says he can do. It's to surrender control of my life to him. It's to be set apart for his holy purposes, to become one of the holy ones. And the sign of repenting and believing, the sign of becoming one of the holy ones, one of God's grapes, if you like, is baptism. And what a wonder that we get to celebrate that at all of our campuses and congregations this weekend. It's baptism weekend. We celebrate that lives have been restored and renewed because of Jesus. People who are being set apart for God's purposes already. And the point of being set apart, well, it's not simply that we come to church on the weekend and do this sort of thing. Imagine that, that Jesus had to die so we could spend an hour on a Sunday morning doing this. That makes no sense. At least not to me it doesn't. God's purposes are way bigger. He's making his world right again. He's restoring and fixing all things. He's doing war with the beasts. His kingdom has arisen. The invasion has begun. And we don't sit around waiting for something to happen. He's given us things to do. We have a role to play. Now, I could guess some of you are thinking, geez, you're taking this a long way. I mean, you said it wasn't that hard to understand. Now you're going all over the map with invasions and armies and beasts and chariots. But am I? I mean, look at the sort of words we read about Jesus. The word Messiah literally means anointed one, a, re- a king who's been anointed. Jesus is the rescuing king sent by God to save his people. Messiah is often translated in the New Testament as Christ, a Greek word. And we sometimes get that mixed up. My name is James Payton. He's Jesus Christ, except that's not his last name. It just simply means king, anointed one. He's King Jesus. That's who he is. He's in charge. Every time that name is used, you remind yourself, he's in charge. There's a new sheriff in town. A new king has shown up. Or the word gospel, it means good news, but in its own context, gospel was a decree or a news that came from the emperor. Perhaps he'd had a son to inherit the throne. Perhaps he'd taken over another country and expanded the empire. But the good news was an imperial edict. And what is the good news? Jesus brings it. The new king has arrived. The invasion has begun. God is making everything new again. Gospel isn't some set of beliefs that you simply believe. It is the imperial message that things are different now. Or church. Originally, the word simply means a gathering of people to conduct the business of the town. And in many senses, we're here on God's business. Not just a bunch of people who somehow think they're better than others, nor are we glowing in the dark, but we are God's holy ones. We are God's people, God's grapes, set apart for his business. We're not just angling around waiting for the end to come here, sitting around on weekends. We've enlisted, whether you knew it or not, into God's revolution. You're part of his invasion force, that everything will change. We're set apart by God. So what does all of this imply, if that's really what this vision's about? What does it all imply? Well, it means that if we don't pay attention, we'll be easily distracted. 
It means that we need to worship well. You see, we were all created to worship. That's how God made us. It's instinctive to us to worship. And if we're not careful to in our worship, we'll choose to worship the wrong things. We can worship political power. We can worship money or our career or sports or our kids or our favorite hobbies or travel. We can easily worship things that are not necessarily bad in themselves, but they're not the right thing. We need to be reminded that we are called and enabled to worship King Jesus. Daniel 7 reminds me of a verse in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 where we read this, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for indeed our God is a consuming fire. We need to remind ourselves to worship well. It's not an optional extra. It's core to being God's people, personally, corporately, publicly, privately, regularly. It needs to be part of our words and our actions. How are you doing? How are you doing when it comes to worship? Choose to worship well. Here's another thing I think it means. It means to be all in. If you've been set apart for God's purposes, it means that we choose to be all in. Here at FEC, we often define that like this, as all praying, personally, and in our small groups, and in our ministry areas, that we would choose to be praying at corporate prayer gatherings, at worship events, and so much more. How's it going? It means that we'd be all helping, with everybody having a role to play. And I know the idea of volunteering sometimes scares people. Helping sounds a little easier, less daunting, perhaps. But imagine how it would feel if somebody came to you and said, hey, how can I help with that? Imagine how it would feel to somebody today if you came to one of our guest services teams and said, hey, how can I help greet people and welcome them at the door? Or you could come during the week to people that set up these stages and say, hey, how could I help? Or in Discovery Land when you're dropping off a child and said, how could I help? Or you're here in our harvest team when they're preparing food for something and saying, how could I help? Or you're part of who's cleaning up after our services today saying, how could I help? How hard could that possibly be? We could choose to be all helping. What if we all did that? What if we were all giving of our time, of our abilities, of our gifts or experiences, and yes, even of our money because we give because God freely gives to us? How are we doing? Don't settle for simply coasting or visiting church at the weekends. Choose to be all in. The invasion has begun and God invites us to be all in. There's one more thing I think we can think about. I call it joining Jesus. It's our vision here at FEC, joining Jesus. A church joining Jesus for the renewal of all things. What would that take? You've possibly heard us talk a little bit about it. Capacities, capabilities that we need. A discipleship pathway about spiritual formation. That we become disciples who can make other disciples. All of us. Our formation team's got a big meeting this week as we're reviewing a number of amazing options that sit before us, helping us all, every single one of us, to become disciple makers the way Jesus intended. It's going to take us developing a leadership pipeline as we think about vocation because our dream for FEC is to be a church for all of Calgary. And we need capable leaders to make that happen. And I'm grateful for so many of you that are stepping up already to be part of that. It's a dream about multiplication. That in the next 10 years, we would see 10 new expressions of FAC throughout our city. A dream that's already unfolding and becoming reality with opportunities that are literally throwing themselves at us. We're not even sure how we could do. 
Joining Jesus means that we discover what God is up to, what Jesus is doing already and choosing to get involved. Joining Jesus reminds us that the invasion has already begun and we get to participate in what he's doing because Jesus wins. That's why we're joining Jesus. Now my time is up. I can see all the kids coming to watch baptisms. You'll have to read the rest of chapter seven all by yourself. Don't worry about it. You don't need to worry about scary beasts and timelines. That's not the point. The message is simply this. Jesus wins. Do you believe it? Jesus wins. To him, to him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Jesus wins. It is time for baptisms. Let's stand together. Let's worship. Let's celebrate lives that have been set by free by Jesus because he always wins.